Welcome back to SideQuests, episode 43. Today we have an esteemed guest with us, Dr. Hauerlach, and uh, of course my usual colleague, Mr. Wesley Chance. And so I'd like Mr. Wesley Chance to introduce him today uh, because this is a special day. And so Wes, could you introduce our guest for us today? Yeah, sure. Um, so I came across your work actually through a site, I think that you at one time curated, I don't know if you still do, the first person scholar. Um, is that still part of your, your duties? No, I, I co-founded First Person Scholar with some fellow PhD students back in 2012, and huh. I worked there as the essays editor until 2015, and um, okay. but I'm not there anymore. Okay, well, it seems to be still going um, strong. Actually, I, I, I was reading about um, Johan uh, Huizinga's work, and that's how I actually came across your work, um, as it looked like you, your dissertation was about um, heroism, in video games um, and sort of the the role of heroism as a death-defying um, narrative, how that helps to sort of establish meaning. Um, so I was looking at that a little bit on academia, uh, but at this point, it uh, it's something I guess you've moved into more semiotics. You've got a new book out about um, multimodal semiotics and rhetoric in video games. Uh, which looks interesting. I can't say that I've had a chance to check out uh, that text yet, but um, maybe you could talk a little bit just first. Oh, and, and you work at, or rather you are at um, the Game Studies Institute at Brock University. Is that all correct? It's the Center for Digital Humanities at Brock University, where I'm an assistant professor of game studies. But yeah, otherwise that was all, that was all Ooh, correct. Thanks. Uh, yeah, so I'm pulling from a number of different sources here, but we've got you on, so you can kind of tell us straight from the source. Um, how has your research kind of developed since you initially got into game studies, now this more digital humanities kind of approach? Um, how has your thinking about heroism and meaning shifted as you've been looking more at rhetoric and semiotics? Can you just kind of sketch in a little more uh, detail there? Sure. So... My PhD is actually in English. It was at the University of Waterloo, and there's a strong rhetoric focus there. And what I was really interested in was how are video games persuasive devices? How are they persuasive artifacts? How do they persuade us into thinking certain things, into certain courses of action? And in particular, I was interested in how military video games like Call of Duty Modern Warfare, the Battlefield series, uh, the Tom Clancy games like Ghost Recon and Rainbow Six, how do they serve as propaganda, essentially? How do they influence what we think about, say, the war on terror or the military generally? I think certainly in the North American context in the U.S. and, and to a lesser extent Canada, the soldier still has this very revered place in society. So... Uh, so, you know, support the troops. During the war on terror's initial stages, it was blasphemous, frankly, to speak ill of the troops and to to protest the war. And so I was interested in how propaganda functions, broadly speaking, and then my focus was on how video games kind of add to that conversation. And one of the things that I I found when when doing the dissertation is that video games especially military video games, are very good at promoting a worldview that says U.S. or Western military intervention is a good thing, that soldiers are heroes, that we should honor them. 
And moreover, that being a soldier is fun and that war is fun. So to me, this was a, an interesting confluence of factors that made video games potentially really good conveyors of ideology and propaganda and made them really persuasive. One of the things I looked at was how video games help us develop our own sense of the world, a worldview, an ideology. And that was important for my dissertation uh, because I have did a lot of work on Ernest Becker, who's a cultural anthropologist. And Becker's main idea is basically that human beings need a worldview to buffer us from the fear of mortality. That if we, if we always thought about, you know, we're going to die one day, that we would essentially be in a state of paralysis. So we need these worldviews. And so video games, of course, deal with death a lot. And I was just really interested in this intersection of death and heroism and how worldviews can actually give us a form of what uh, Jay Lifton's called symbolic immortality. And this is just the idea, and this is whether it's Final Fantasy and RPG or, or a first-person shooter, the idea that in performing heroic deeds in the world, you live on after death, like through song or movies or video games. And so I really saw video games and still do as this heroic medium. I mean, it's a, it's a cliche there. They're power fantasies. They help us feel good about ourselves, feel powerful when in our everyday lives, we don't necessarily get that opportunity. So I was very interested in, in kind of that side of things in the cultural anthropology side, the social psychology side. I did an experiment with, through terror management theory that tested if players actually think about their deaths when dying in video games. And I liked that. I really liked that work and I'm, I may return to it one day, but I had a question after my dissertation, which was, well, okay, I'm kind of taking for granted here that video games do persuade people. But what are the actual mechanisms at play? How, what are the semiotics of video games? And so in my dissertation, like I, I look back at it not too long ago, and you start to see the, the beginnings of the ideas of, this, of multimodality, which is just basically how video games combine different means of communication at once. So modes are like speech and text and moving image and music. And my, or my argument in the in dissertation was that Games use all these different ways to communicate information to basically reinforce the same message, which is that you are powerful, you are a hero. So that's where I got into, into multimodality and my, my work in kind of the mechanisms of meaning, I guess, uh, uh, in video games. And so that's what led me to, to write the book. And, uh, you know, I spent, I guess, two or three years on that. And that's where I'm at now. Well, that's fascinating because we've we've confronted uh, a little bit sort of in opposition, sort of in terms of uh, education, Ernest Becker's work and the denial of death and mm. also sort of the relationship between ideology and mythology and how sort of uh, there is an idea right now that ideology sort of parasitizes uh, mythology, that it takes sort of the positive elements but leaves out the negative, which seems to be what Ernest Becker as a neo-Freudian focuses on himself, um, which is interesting because something we've confronted in Final Fantasy VII is that the antagonist himself cannot confront his own death. But mm. what the protagonist has to run into Cloud is the fact that he is not 
what he wishes to be. He's sort of an anti-Adlerian character. He he has to recognize his own weakness. He's and I, I'm not trying to push forward like a Christian mythology here, but he has to sort of humbly recognize his weakness and his lack of heroic attributes in order to truly become one. So so one thing I'm interested in, and I'll put this kind of to the side, is what the intersection you think is between ideology and a robust mythology, and also um, propaganda as opposed to art. But then I, I, I also want just a more foundational question from you. How, how did you get into video games? Uh, what video games did you like when you were young? Because it seems as if you have a, a sort of a strong sense of narrative since your PhD is in English, but you, you also um, have done some sophisticated thinking about this medium. And that's something else that we sort of talk about. How sophisticated really is the medium of video games? Does it stand up against narrative um and so i guess you know we ask these big questions and you can just pick and choose from what you'd like to answer there sure so i got into video games quite young i an nes when i was maybe five or six and you know just played super mario and master blaster and the ninja turtles game which was looking back on it was really so unfair <laughs> yeah i know i remember being really frustrated and just trying yes. again and again and later, later on, looking back on it as like a design, I can see, well, you know, there's maybe some design issues here, but at the time, you know, you just think that it's, that it's you. Um, but I, I have really early memories of just, you know, really determined to beat these games and just uh, getting a great feeling when you, when you finally do. Um, so I've been, I've been playing video games for a long time, and I really uh, was a console player. I didn't play a whole lot of PC. Um, I played mostly shooters, I'd say, for the majority of my kind of teens and um, early 20s. And it wasn't until Oblivion that I really saw the potential and the, the point. Like, I got, I got why people loved RPGs so much with Oblivion that I, that I got into them. And um, from then on, I've been just a huge Bethesda fan. And um, I think actually Oblivion and Skyrim are really good examples of the problem with video game narratives at least in that genre the you know this this question always keeps coming up um like ian bogos wrote an article i think last year that basically argued in the atlantic that basically argued that video games are better off without narrative because film and tv and books do them better and hmm. my my immediate response to that was actually a little bit defensive i thought no no that's not that's not true i've had i think they're profound narrative moments in, in video games on average though and in general i'd say that they're probably not quite as strong in delivering a narrative at least for me personally but it is it is a very subjective thing i think the the reason for that is just that when you're when you're making a game like at a, whether at the studio level you're you're making it for a certain audience and that audience often is more concerned with the mechanics and the the narrative um, supports the mechanics, right? Um, so I think that all too often the mechanics and the gameplay, as it's sometimes called, is what gets precedence. So it's it's not that I don't think video games can do really solid narratives because they do. I just think for for most of the medium's life that hasn't been the priority really. And there are of course exceptions. Um, you know, the Metal Gear Solid was really strong on narrative. Uh, you know, not that it was a good narrative necessarily, but it was just really important. 
their course um, text adventures. Um, and so narrative's always been a really big part of video games. But, you know, the when you think of the games that got a lot of critical attention for narrative, like I think of Bioshock and then later Bioshock Infinite. And, you know, what those games were doing um, is is not so profound when you look at um, similar themes in, in film and, and books. So my my understanding of narrative in games is that it's it's an an important aspect to making a game meaningful without narrative you basically just have i don't know pong or uh puzzles right and so i i think that uh, a narrative is really important but it just hasn't been um successful as often as as it maybe could and so that's why you're still getting pushback people saying that uh, narrative isn't important in games or narrative isn't good uh, in games the problem is just to return to something I said a moment ago with Skyrim and Oblivion. The Those games are designed to make you feel as if you're in this big open world that you uh, eventually master. And the challenge, of course, is, you know, what's what's how can you do a really strong, cohesive narrative when there's so many moving parts and there's so much freedom? Um, you know, same with, with GTA and, and Red Dead. When you, there's that ultimate tension and conflict between something that's, you know, cohesive and coherent and giving the player freedom. So something like Skyrim and Oblivion, I didn't think they had really a strong narrative. I couldn't really tell you what the story was about except for in very broad strokes. Um, but that's that's the challenge with games, I think, even at a in different genres is how do we balance the player's freedom and sense that they can do what they want to do with delivering something that's that's coherent and i have my students make twine little twine games like very quickly uh interactive fiction tool and very very quickly they see the challenge of okay well how do we you know make these choose your own adventure stories these little games and still convey the narrative that we want to so I think that's the fundamental tension. That's not saying anything groundbreaking. That's you know been been debated for a long time now, but I, I think it's something that um, will not go away. Like people, ludology, narratology debate, everybody's sick of. I think, and for good reasons. But I don't think that means we can't talk about narrative generally. Um, you know, we can't talk about the challenges of the medium of narrative and some ways that actually the medium excels in certain forms of narrative. So I guess that's my, my general take on, on the question and how do we reconcile, you know, agency and co coherence and cohesion? Well, I, th I think it's very difficult and there's probably only a handful of games that I've played anyways that I can say um, do it well. It seems like to, to take that and look at sort of how people experience their own lives, th that, that actually seems like a kind of the same problem maybe that we're seeing writ large in the mm -hmm. culture right now where, you know, basic narratives that used to sort of sketch out a course of, you know, what we call a good life are no longer really operative. Um, maybe that's a good thing, like people have a more of a sense of freedom and, and kind of openness to various kinds of opportunities, but it also leaves a kind of... Uh, absence, uh, you know, that, that sort of God-shaped hole that the existentialists might talk about or, or something, you know, 
less lugubrious. But anyway, there's a problem there too. And, and it's interesting to me that video games are kind of the ascendant medium right now um, insofar as they sort of reflect that same, you know, crisis uh, of meaning. Um, one interesting thing about your, your dissertation that I wanted to follow up with for, for kind of looking at like uh, war games and, and the narrative of the hero as a warrior particular, like how do you modify that? Uh, how do you make it more complex uh, and, and sort of derive meaning in a peaceful world or, or at least inject more um, sort of nuance into the old story of, of the hero as warrior? Do you, do you have some examples or have some ideas about how that might be developed in games? Sure. So that's, that's Becker's central problem or his central point and the problem that he identifies is that, you know, if I go out and uh, slay my enemy and kill a bunch of enemy combatants, there's, well, I've, I've, you know, fought for my country. And so uh, I get medals, I get, you know, maybe parades and there's this very public, way of showing off that I've done something good for my community. And that's all that heroism is at the end of the day. It's not a fixed thing. It's what does my community value? That's what heroism is about. So what's optimistic about Becker's work and about heroism in general is that it doesn't have to be violence. It can be whatever the community values. Right now, uh, I think there are a lot of video games that take a, an approach to valorizing characteristics and events that aren't typically heroic so uh you know cart life a game like that uh it's making a commentary on on capitalism and class uh this war of mine um i think makes a commentary on war and you know how it's i guess in a way just heroic to survive um i think about uh you know indie games like that dragon cancer um gone home which you know there's there's value in discovery and, and understanding oneself and, and one's relationships. So I think there's lots of ways that video games can contribute to a resistance, I guess, of to this idea that you have to be violent and, you know, powerful in a traditional sense to be heroic. I think that's, that's something I was interested in my dissertation was, well, how do we culturally establish a value system that is altruistic, that helps people, not at the expense of others. And that's, that's the problem. That's, that's something I still think about a lot. And I think I will return to, um, in my research is, well, how do we, how do we actually change attitudes on a large scale? Cause that's what we have to do. And it's, it's very challenging, um, to jump around a little bit. The, predominant worldview right now is certainly capitalist in nature. Uh, it's very, it's very easy to demonstrate that you're doing well through purchasing things and consuming things and consuming things makes us feel good. So, you know, I can have a house or a car or, you know, clothes or, you know, the next iPhone or whatever. And these consumption practices make us feel good. Well, you know, what if we were to counter that, the logic of hyperconsumption with something like 
changing the systems that oppress people or changing the systems that allow for wide-scale climate change, what small part can video games play in, in changing people's attitudes? And I want to be really clear that video games are not going to, like I'm not super optimistic, they're not going to change the world by themselves. They're just one part of this of the broader discourse. But that's what I'm interested in is what, what part can they play? And I think we need to get away from this idea that the hero is, you know, the hyper-masculine, shoot people in the face, you know, gruff soldier, and that heroism can take many forms. It, it doesn't have to be fixed to military heroism. Yeah, and it does seem as if, if we just take a broad view of media in general, especially movies in the West, that we have been moving away from that sort of hyper-masculine ideal since the 80s, like the Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone sort of 80s Rambo Terminator superhero is to some extent being replaced, you know, by like, say, the the sort of a Tobey Maguire-esque uh, Spider-Man. And we're also finding, I think, greater diversity, especially, you know, like Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse that recently won an Academy Award last Sunday. I think we are seeing a transitioning heroic ideal. But I, I have two uh, sort of interesting questions, I think, for you, which is one is, do you think that the dearth of narrative in something like a shooter is is okay for people because there is a prevailing narrative in their culture that the shooter plugs into so that it is just natural. Um, and and I, I think Wes was also sort of touching on this point that perhaps also why a game, which is mechanically fascinating, like you said, Bioshock or a Counter-Strike, uh, a game that takes high technical skill and precision that takes a lot of game hours to be good at, especially if you're competing against other actual people. Um, do you think that that sort of has to do with how people do live their lives? Like in general, we aren't necessarily concerned with whether we are uh, on the empire side or the rebellion side. We're sort of focusing on the mechanics of everyday life and whether what we're doing feels sort of meaningful or in the case of a video game is fun or whether we're doing our job well. And that we, we don't really stop to sort of smell the roses or to reflect on what side we're really on and just secondary to that, I, I'm really interested in whether you think that during times of sort of tension or like sort of war times, of course, you know, um, it's sort of undefined whether we still have or what we're doing in the Middle East for America, whether during times of sort of conflict with other nations, games like shooters would become more prevalent and would even become more interesting to um, people in the West. And I, I know that we don't just play these games in America, obviously. Um, and, you know, sort of the joke on online message boards is that Koreans are the best at these games. Um, uh, though I'd have to look at, you know, there are giant world competitions now that I, I should look more into. But th yes, those are my questions. Sure. So on, on whether or not the times of war, there's, there's more tension. I think, I think so. Matthew Payne wrote a really great book uh, called Military Games After 9-11. I think I got that name right. Great. And, oh, and he, he really looked at that question a lot, is how do games inform our understanding of the war on terror? That's what he was looking at. And how does the war on terror influence our understanding of games? And he, the thing I really liked about that book was he really demonstrated the two-way street there between games and, you know, broader ideas about things like war. And 
something's interesting though if you remember right i think after the modern warfare series which ended in 2011 there hasn't really been a lot of games set in the middle east like a lot of the shooters have gone back to like world war ii or world war one or to the you know call of duty went to the future for a long time and um that's fascinating to me and i don't know why that happened maybe just be that people got sick of the same old same old landscapes and the same old narratives i guess but um to me that's interesting uh, it's you know right when the war on terror began to get to that stage okay this is really slogging on we don't this is a quagmire now uh the narrative shifted and people became less interested in them whether there's a connection there or not i don't know i think that's fascinating you know and whether you know shooters a, a narrative in a shooter is let's be honest it's secondary i, I think most right. people would agree out agree to that and you know the latest call of duty black ops 4 just got rid of the narrative altogether because that from what i understand that was a that was a big part of their budget we're developing these cinematic cutscenes, you know paying kit harrington to do voiceover and motion capture work and that was a big part of their budget and a lot of people would either just you know go through the campaign very quickly and never play it again or not play it at all you know people played call of duty for the online multiplayer and zombies so nevertheless i think that you don't need cinematic cutscenes to have a narrative i think as soon as you have a setting and characters and you know visual visual rhetoric you have a narrative to some extent um, so I, I think that that you, you something felt missing in the latest uh, Black Ops. Like it's you kind of even if you didn't pay that much attention to the narrative of, of a Call of Duty game, you still you still kind of I was kind of sad that it wasn't there because I didn't. Uh, you know that's a really good way to get used to the mechanics before you you go to the online multiplayer. So uh, so that was that question. Um, if you could remind me again of another. The other question you were asking, it's, it's slipped in my mind uh, right now. I, w I was wondering whether part of um, the, the appeal of one of these games is sort of part of the appeal of everyday life, that, um, that we don't generally reflect on whether we are on the side of good or evil. Um, we sort of uh, reflect on whether we are doing our jobs well or performing our relationships well. So some of these sort of bigger narrative questions of like these like so profound uh, questions of good and evil or which side we're actually on don't really come up. And whether that's part of the appeal of say a shooter where you're just sort of, you're like on the ultimate team, right? You are on a team where what is good is to win with your team and to keep them alive or to get to the goal where you don't really reflect on whether the goal is in general good or not. And in fact, I would add a corollary now just thinking about it a little. Do you think that's sort of the path that heroes and narrative sort of tread? They're sort of doing what they do and they have like a moment of realization. Yeah. So it's very difficult in everyday life to know if you're doing good or, or not. It's, there's no, you know, plus 100 XP every time you hold the door open for somebody or there's not there's there aren't these quantifiable very visible markers that you're doing good so yeah you know it's good and evil are not very readily defined uh, i think as you get older you start to you know f develop the meaning for yourself and you develop your own your own moral guidelines but they're still not as clear cut as obviously a, a first person shooter and i think one of the problems I had with the Modern Warfare series was that 
it tried to add some nuance to the story. I don't know if you played those games, but they basically, part of the narrative was like, oh, well, there's this conspiracy. In fact, you know, the, one of the generals are taking orders from is going to betray you or does betray you. There's that no Russian scene where you're killing civilians in an airport with, with terrorists. And so they tried to complicate this very simplistic idea of the hero. But I think it ultimately failed because the mechanics of the game were shoot people in the face and that's it. There's no, like, there's no way to even get somebody to surrender. There are no, there's no way to talk it out, to try diplomacy, to try negotiating. And I think that's fundamental to how they convey their propaganda is that well, these people cannot be reasoned with. These people just need to be destroyed and exterminated. And that's why we're over there, you know, uh, you know, bombing these countries and um, occupying these territories is because, you know, that's, that's the implicit message of the mechanics. So, you know, Bogo's procedural rhetoric comes into play there. They're just through the mechanics of the game and the rules of the game. They're, those games are implicitly sending us a message that while well, this military intervention is not only the right thing to do, it's the only thing we can do to uh, keep us safe and, and win this war. So the, the, I think that the idea of, you know, a hero just, or a soldier just goes on, you know, I just have to do my job. And then afterwards their realization. Yeah. I think that that's a pretty common trope in, in games and, and other media. I, I find it a little bit shallow, I guess. And it almost seems like a superficial realization a lot of the time, uh, you know, spec ops the line. I actually think that was, they did a really good job of at their current moment and complicating the idea of military heroism. So I don't know if you, you're familiar with with that game of the white phosphorus scene, um, where it turns out that you're actually, you know, killing a bunch of the people you're supposed to protect. And that's that's kind of flirting with, I think, with the idea of, of complicating military heroism. But after that's before that scene and after that scene, it's back to just shooting people. And so it's again, I think it's that conflict I spoke about at the beginning is how do we make a game that's, you know, quote unquote fun for the audience that's engaging, that follows generic norms, but the, at the same time, uh, want, you know, want to say something meaningful narratively. And I, I think that that's, that's very difficult for, for games to, to do. Um, if you're just having people shoot enemies for 20 hours or 30 hours or whatever, and then at the end there's this cutscene that says, Oh, what have I done? To me, that falls flat, and I think that game develop game developers, if they want to make that that point, that they need to do mechanically and, and through the whole of the game, and it just feels kind of tacked on if it only appears kind of once or or at the end. How do you think this might sort of develop as people more fully embody their character in, say, like a VR kind of setting, as that sort of uh, realism? becomes more prevalent, uh, maybe as their avatar is, um, you know, if it if they're they're killed in combat, they actually die, you know, have a permadeath kind of setting. How, how could that maybe change uh, this? And as you're playing, you know, not against the computer, but more against other people in other parts of the world, you know, uh, in, in online sort of settings. I feel like, as you're talking, those were the kinds of ideas that came to mind for me. But um, I was also curious about how your um, 
teaching, you know, what you do as a as an instructor now impacts the way that you think about games and what kinds of things games can do as as educational tools, um, more kind of specifically for kids, but but maybe also for adults. Um, I know that they're already used, obviously, as as training um, and indeed as sort of deployment systems for the military. Um, so it's it's a very interesting kind of. Uh, I guess, realm of, of applications of games that sort of are, are unfolding in, before us. What are your thoughts on that? Sure. So I'll say off the top that I'm very skeptical of VR still as a gaming technology. I think there are a lot of really interesting applications for VR outside of games. Like one of the areas where apparently it's doing really well is in virtual tours for real estate, like realtors. So, you know, I can just, put on my Google cardboard and walk around the house I want to buy. Uh, there's been this promise of VR for a long time and what it's going to, you know, this idea of total immersion uh, and embodiment. And I'm still jaded. I mentioned this in the book. I'm still jaded from the virtual boy. Uh, you're, I don't know if you, you two are probably too young, but. Um, it was awful. It was awful. Yeah. I remember it. Yeah. Um, and what, what was awful about it wasn't just, you know, the, the hellish landscape once you put it on it was the the promise and the hype that when you you saw right. the commercial and i was i don't know six or seven or something and um you know this is the next evolution of gaming and it of course fell very flat and i feel like there's maybe not to that extent but there's similar promises being made every sort of like five years or so like when the oculus dev kit one came out oh geez maybe uh, 2012 or something like that, maybe even earlier. Um, there's again this kind of, well, okay, now we're entering the real era of VR and it still hasn't really taken off. Uh, PlayStation VR is, does reasonably well. Last I checked, they had about 2 million unit sales, which isn't bad, but when you compare that to how many PS4s are out there, it's, it's a pretty small percentage. Uh, I have an HTC Vive uh, at the Center for Digital Humanities. We also have um oculus riffs and uh psvrs so and our students use them and they play games with them and they make games with them so I, I think vr when you put it on you actually still feel very much like you're in a a virtual space i think what vr is lacking is the haptic feedback the tactility the sense that i'm that i'm actually in an environment really depends on this you know proprioception this feeling that i'm there um like all, all these physical forces that we get in the quote-unquote real world so it's potential to you know complicate heroism or, or what it can do about narrative i i'm still not sure i guess i think that where vr is really good is in things like horror games or um like a flight game things like that where they do really well um, in terms of narrative, I guess I'm still not sure. I'm, I'm not sure what, how it would be used any different than traditional traditional games. For before we go on education, we can talk about that a little bit because I, I do think it's interesting. And I do want to go that direction, but just something I've been sort of mulling over since you brought up Ernest Becker and ideology, propaganda, and sort of how a hero can be a vessel of propaganda. I wonder if you also think there's a positive side to this, um, that 
is it possible that narrative and and is it possible that narrative does not simply shield us against death anxiety? I understand that perspective that sort of you're sitting around the fire. There are some terrible, you know, you're a Neolithic person. There's some terrible, horrible, fanged beasts uh, outside of the fire. And so you tell stories in order to forget about that. But so many stories focus on the fact that we are mortal. Um, and it's funny, I'm just thinking about, I saw a horrific video yesterday of a snake hanging from a telephone pole, holding onto the head of a crow is possibly the most horrifying thing I've ever seen. It's in Australia. And it made me think it's very good that we don't have as many snakes in America anymore. St. Patrick is, you know, and St. George are, are hell of a guys, you know. Um, but do you, do you think that, and sort of, Wes and I are sort of philosophy people, and a claim that Socrates, or rather Plato makes is that philosophy is preparation for death. And so the sort of idea behind a philosopher, which I think would be the ultimate ideal behind an excellent mythology, is not so much that you you can be immortal or immortalize yourself through valorous deeds. I think Achilleus deals with this quite a bit in book nine of the Iliad, Achilles, um, but that that you do die and that perhaps there is a best way to live or a meaningful way to live in the wake of your mortality. Is there, is there a function? Do you think that um, video games, if they're going to rise to this next level, um, A, do you think it's possible? Do you think that narrative can function in a way that um, sort of expands your, your consciousness to your, expands your mind to the possibility of your own death rather than just um, shielding you from it? And B, do you think if video games can do that, that will be what takes them to the next level? Or do you just see them going in a different direction altogether? Well, I think they certainly, they certainly can make you aware of your own, your own death and they don't have to be these, these death-denying artifacts necessarily. But I think that I think that's what Becker was trying to get at ultimately was what we have to do to be better to each other, to stop meaningless conflicts, is to embrace our mortality and to understand that people have their own ways of dealing with their mortality. Because for Becker, that's the root of all evil, is of all heinous acts, is that we cannot tolerate a worldview a, a hero system he calls that's different from our own because it calls into question the validity of our own so if you have the one true belief system well then i must not and so he's so different worldviews are a threat to us and i think that games or any other media that can somehow i hate to use this term but i'm just gonna use it of breed empathy in people uh, and to, to think about how we can understand other positions. Well, for Becker, that's really the way to, to, you know, as cheesy as it sounds, to build a better world and to at least mitigate some of the worst aspects of human nature, of violence and, and oppression. So I think um, Karen Trier has written about empathy games. That's uh, a lot of fantastic. And I think there's a lot of potential for games to help us understand other worldviews. And uh, I think some of them do. Like I, I think a lot of the Bioware games, the Mass, Mass Effect games and the, the Dragon Age games, I think they, they're not perfect, but they do a pretty good job at getting us to understand different viewpoints, different ways of seeing the world. And 
that there's actually benefit and value and not just accepting and tolerating different perspectives, but in valuing them. So I, I think video games certainly can. I think that's still rare. When you look at, like, if you just still look at the top 10 best-selling video games, they're, it's a little bit depressing, to be honest. It's still, they're kind of the, the same old um, mechanics, maybe dressed up a little bit differently, like like Fortnite or something. But they're, you know, really, there hasn't been that much change uh, in the industry when you look at the most popular titles. But that doesn't mean that video games as a medium can't have us accept our, our mortality and, and have us resist these these parts of us that you know think the only way to get ahead is to step on the heads of other people. So I think there's certainly there's certainly potential there. The New York Times doesn't really do not a game, but they do these virtual reality experiences, these virtual reality stories where they have you see the perspective of, for example, a, a refugee in the Ukraine. And I think that something like that goes a long way where they're not trying to they're not being necessarily too prescriptive, although, you know, technology and any sort of medium, there's always politics involved, but they're, they're just kind of saying, well, here's what it's like. And I think that that goes a long way to, to breeding empathy. Um, what, is that what they need to take to the next level? I guess it depends. For me, I think the medium is maturing. And as you mentioned a bit earlier, it's getting more diverse, which is much needed. And I think what's going to take them to the next level is really not so much the, the content or the narrative, but how do they actually deal with things like accepting other worldviews mechanically, right? Even, even Bioware, it's, they're still very much done narratologically and through cutscenes. But how do, as game designers, how do we build systems that are, that are able to be viewed as as bridging multiple worldviews i think that's what's that's what's interesting and there's lots of i think independent games that try to do this but on the in the triple a scene we're still not we're not seeing that very much yeah you you mentioned uh fortnite and i have to say that i haven't played that one still uh as popular as it is but i feel like i have because every time i walk around you know i'm a substitute teacher i walk around the the classroom i just see kids playing that on their phones mm-hmm. um <laughs> and so it seems like the main function for them is like a this kind of uh distraction on the one hand and also like social uh competition it, it's like fierce they 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 need to um you know prove themselves in this setting and and of course that's 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 kind of the old story right um and as a as an educator it's it's very difficult to kind of get them to want to put that aside and you know learn about whatever else it might be you know math or science or Spanish um, that they're supposed to be learning about I, I feel like those are those kinds of conflicts are, are just always going to be there and always going to be something that has to uh, be at the least you know negotiated um, mm-hmm. if not sort of transformed um, so that's just kind of my my last little little thought for you, um, Alex. I don't know if you had a final question you want to ask before we have to let our our guests go. Yeah, and I'm sorry that um, we don't have quite as much time today. So perhaps we could have you on another time. And I'm really interested in talking with you and your grad student um, furthering this conversation about the relationship between ISIS propaganda and sort of recruiting 
through video games. But I suppose I want to end with just sort of a global question. Thank you for throwing it over to me, Wes. Um, just what do you think the future of video games is and what direction would you like to see them go? Hmm. Well, it's, it's really difficult to say. I mean, uh, you know, three years ago, I don't think anybody was predicting that Battle Royale games were going to be as popular as they are now. Um, I, I think it's really difficult to predict where they're actually going to go. My hope is, I guess, not so much for this type of games that come out, because I think that there'll always be new genres coming up and new combinations of genres. I guess my hope for games is more on the uh, industry side. I'd like to see the industry get more diverse. So we know that people from all walks of life play games. But if you look at most of the major studios, they're mostly the employees, especially the programmers, are predominantly men and predominantly white. So that just necessarily is going to bleed into the types of games that are made and the types of stories that are told. So I think that greater diversity is really important for the industry. Um, Tanya DePass's I Need Diverse Games initiative I think is wonderful. I think we're starting to see a lot more diversity in the critical sphere. Uh, like sites like Waypoint, I don't think could have existed even five years ago. Um, it's headed by Austin Walker and they, have, they do wonderful criticism. Um, so I'd like to see greater diversity, that diversity reflected in the actual studios themselves. And I think there's, you know, we've seen all this news lately about the layoffs and the CEOs making $15 million while you lay off employees and record profits while you lay off employees. And I, I think I'd like to see the industry really tackle these labor challenges. One way is that's through unionization, but I think there's, there's other means that you can go as well. But I think that's what I'm most interested in right now is how do we make the industry better for its workers? And I think that will in turn make for better, more interesting, more diverse games. Awesome. Thanks so much, uh, Dr. Jason Harliak. Uh, Harlack. Yeah, I'm never going to get it. <laughs> Harlack. That's okay. Like Powerback. Uh, Harlack. Thanks for your time and, and best of luck with all your, your research and teaching. Um, it's, it's been really illuminating uh, hearing your thoughts and, and giving us some more directions to go with this, uh, this investigation. Well, great. Thanks so much for having me, guys. All right. Thank you for being on.